Hello and welcome to the Luke Miller Podcast. I'm glad that you're able to join me today. On this week's episode, we're talking Easter and archaeology and how the two work together. We're going to spend some time looking at different locations in the Easter story, like the crucifixion location and the burial of Jesus. We're also going to take some time to look at some artifacts that have come up over the years and have been found, such as the very controversial Shroud of Turin. We'll take a look at what data we can take away from that, and we can see how it all relates to apologetics and the story of Jesus' death. I'm excited for today. I always love talking archaeology. So grab your Bibles and your Indiana Jones hat, and let's dive in. I'm excited for today as we take a look at Easter and archaeology, and I hope you are too as we we really start to dive into this. Uh, I want to take a look at several different locations revolving around Jesus' death and that passion narrative. And, and as we look at Jesus' death, you know, most readers of the New Testament might think that crucifixion was a rare form of execution which began with Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, in fact, the, the 5th century historian, uh, Greek historians, describe a case long before Jesus, dating back all the way to about 500 BC, where Darius the Great uh, crucified 3,000 Babylonians. Whether his remarks on this cruel death is unknown, we also know that Alexander the Great, after his grueling and costly siege of Attire in Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, crucified 2,000 survivors as well. It is one of the most wretched forms of death, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, declared after he witnessed the execution of Jews after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD that this was no way for any person to die, no matter what crime they had committed. It was the Romans who actually took crucifixion and ran with it. They, We know that they crucified probably around 250,000 different Jewish people over their Roman reign and over their uh, em, uh, throughout the time of their empire and the Roman Empire. It's interesting to note that Romans did not crucify their fellow citizens, but only foreigners, typically enemies of the state or people with a lower status. We do have different evidence of this as we look through the uh, history, and especially in the 1900s, we see that there is evidence that we see from this. In fact, in 1968, the remains of a man, probably in his 20s, named John, were discovered in Israel. Upon examination of the bones, part of a rusty nail was actually found intact in the heel bone, indicating that the man had been crucified. To date, this man is the only person who remains show evidence of crucifixion. He was executed sometime in around the mid-first century, probably around 50 AD, when the Romans were still in charge. If we look at our story of Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' death, after the beatings and scourgings, Jesus began to carry his cross or the crossbar to the actual place of the skull, Golgotha for execution. We can read this in Matthew 27, in Luke 23, in John 19. En route to this spot, the Roman soldiers forced Simeon of Cyrene, which is actually a city in uh, modern-day Libya, to carry the cross. 
Cyrene had a large Jewish population, and the name Simon suggests that this man was Jewish, and so probably in Jerusalem for the Passover, like tens of thousands of other Jews from all over the Mediterranean world. Mark's gospel informs us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. We know this in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Now, what's interesting, though, is in 1941, a sealed tomb in the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem revealed its contents, which included 11 ossuaries. Ossuaries are the places where they put the bones of people who've passed away. Several had names etched onto the limestone, and of a special interest is one of them had the names of Alexander and Simon painted on the front. And inscribed on the back were the words Simon slash Alexander, son of Simon. Now, this has been suggested that this ossuary was not only the container for the bones of Alexander, son of Simon, but also Simon himself. It included two sets of skeletal remains in the single ossuary. Uh, and in this case, published reports do not state whether those two sets of bones were discovered in the box or not, but in any event, a number of scholars think that the bones belong to the man who carried Jesus's cross. Interestingly as well, this tomb did not contain the name of Alexander's brother Rufus, but the name does pop up in Rome on a list of Christians who Paul greets in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. So it is possible that Rufus is the son of Simon who carried the cross for Jesus. I say this all because as we look through the story, one of the things that I think that is so important about apologetics and archaeology is how they work together. Often we don't think of archaeology as that apologetic tool. But what I love to do is I love to see that the story that is being told and the history that is being told in the Bible, we can actually see evidence of this in physical remains from what we now have in Jerusalem. If we start to understand that the people are real and that the events are real, then we can start to help people see that the God behind these events is real as well. And so you can start to see, okay, well, Simon was a real person. It wasn't just a story or a narrative. There was Simon who had a son, Alexander, and had a son, Rufus. And we can now actually prove that. That's in coordination with the Gospel of Mark and Matthew. So so we then ask, as Jesus is carrying the cross to Golgotha, where is Golgotha as far as it modern-day Jerusalem is. The Bible locates the place of crucifixion outside the city in keeping with Jewish practice that the dead are buried outside the city um, or in an encampment outside the city, regardless, outside the city walls. The other clue concerning the location is that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. In, in which no one had ever been laid. And I'm quoting John chapter 19, verse 41. This makes it clear that Golgotha was close to some tombs, again, an indication that this area was outside the city walls. You can see what we're doing here is as we discover something or as we look for clues, we can use both biblical texts and we've got a lot of key resources that we can find from historians, especially Jewish historians during the Roman Roman rule of the time of Jesus. One of the key names that you will constantly hear me bring up is Josephus, who was one of the great historians and writers, uh, where we can start to piece some of this together. Now, 
I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, there was a game on our computer called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And you would get little clues and you would try and find the location of where Carmen Sandiego was. There was actually a TV show and now there's a new TV show. Uh, But one of the things that I I like about what we're kind of doing here, it's kind of saying where in the world is and we're now we're taking a look at Golgotha. We're asking that question and saying, what... What historical data do we have and where can that point us to uh, that specific location? And and so we see in John 19 verse 41 that it points us out to something outside the city walls. Uh, Again, this is that coming from the fact that it was Jewish tradition that all the the dead were buried uh, outside of the city because they were, of course, unclean. Now, today, if you visited Jerusalem, there are two sites that are thought to be the location of Golgotha and and nearby the tomb of Christ. The first is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which stands over the spot where the earliest Christian tradition places Golgotha and the tomb of Jesus. You, if you've been to Jerusalem, you can you can see it, you can go in it, and and it is quite the the building. Now, in the 4th century, Queen Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, visited Jerusalem, and as the story goes, she was shown the location of Jesus' sufferings and his death. The area had previously been covered up by a shrine to Roman deities, which is generally in tradition with what the Romans would do and other nations would do. Often, when they would find a holy place, they would instill their own deities and make that a special location for that, so the people in that area, wherever they took over, would be able would not be able to worship their god there, but then have to focus on Caesar and Rome. Uh, and we know that that probably happened around this area in about 135 AD. Uh, so up until that point, it was the traditional location of where Jesus's death was, where Golgotha was. Looking at the walls that encircle the old city, though, today, one realizes that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Church of Holy Resurrection, as it's known in earlier literature, is situated inside the defense walls of the northern quadrant of the city. Again, this is us kind of saying that where in the world is Carmen San Diego and taking a look at the evidence. While tradition may say that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or Holy Resurrection is where Golgotha is, it does not point to the archaeological data and what we know of Jewish burial rites. So we know that this area was situated within the walls, the defense walls of the northwestern quadrant of the city. With this now being known, we start to say maybe there is another location with this. Uh, And what we start to see is that uh, what came from this was General Charles Gordon. And Charles Gordon was fairly famous when it comes to archaeology, especially of of Jerusalem. There's several other items that are named after him and finds that he did and dig sites that he had. But what we also know that he found the so-called garden tomb near a stone grouping north of the gate, uh, the Damascus Gate in the city of Jerusalem. It had all the depressions in it that looked like uh, the face of a skull. Nearby was the tomb that was discovered in 
uh, in a garden setting. So we take a look at the garden tomb now and we say, okay, now where could this actually be it? We know that there was this rock outcropping that looked like a skull. What does it look like when it, as far as evidence is, is concerned? It's set in a lovely and quiet garden, making the setting a, a perfect spot for tranquility in the middle of a bustling city. Yet, as we start to take a look at it, there are a few problems equated with the garden tomb with that of Jesus. The first issue is the typology of the tomb. It is a first temple period tomb and not the kind that Romans used. Furthermore, it is adjacent to the area or adjacent to the area of the garden tomb is other Iron Age rock tombs, which are from much, much earlier in history, which would suggest that this tomb was here long before Jesus ever was. What we find a little later in the writings of Josephus is some detailed writings on the walls of Jerusalem. So what we actually find a little later on in this is that Josephus makes very specific writings detailing how many feet in this direction, how many feet in this direction before turning east or before turning west. What we note from Josephus is that at one point they had to make a, a right turn that was necessary to avoid an outcrop of rock, which was where stone was quarried. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located outside the second wall, and so still actually considered outside the wall of Jerusalem. What we also find is that the term Ganath offers a possible clue to the area outside of the wall. It means garden, and in John 19.41 reports that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was in a garden. Taking all this into consideration for the location, uh, we see that there's a strength and connection between the garden mentioned in John and the name of the wall and the gate in Josephus. And because of re recent archaeological evidence, it shows that the traditional sites of the death and burial of Jesus are actually outside the walls of Jerusalem. Excavations within the church have revealed Roman period tombs that were cut from that very limestone that they were quarrying at one point in Roman history. And it is identified as being from a Roman time period when it was uh, quarried. One of the leading archaeologists of Jerusalem at the time, Dan Bahat, summarizes the history of the area based on certain recent discoveries by saying, The quarry became a garden or an orchard where cereals, fig trees, carob trees, and olive trees grew. At the same time, in the first century, the quarry slash garden also became a cemetery, and there are at least four tombs from that time period that have been found. Perhaps the configuration of the rock in the quarry looked like a skull, hence the name Golgotha, which means in Aramaic, the place of the skull. So if we bring this all full circle, I think what we can take away from this is, you know, there's a good chance that actually the location that we have with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and if you are listening to this, you can Google that and you can take a look at the Church of the Holy Resurrection or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, both the same place, just with, with different names, you can take a look at both the Garden Tomb and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
what I'm saying in all of this is most of the evidence points to Church of the Holy Sepulchre as being the location of Golgotha. Why? Because it is outside the walls of Jerusalem, as we now know. But it also it had a garden-like setting that was eventually turned into a cemetery where we have evidence of where Romans buried people during that first century. It seems like a lot to arrive at a conclusion of a location, but you have to understand how important it is for us to take a look at or understand that these places are real. So much about what is taught is that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up fairy tales, and yet we see that there are specific names as we look as Simon with the sons Alexander and Rufus, as we look at them carrying Jesus' cross up to the place of the skull Golgotha, then we've got people and we've got locations that are actually real places. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well is some archaeological evidence that has arrived over the years. One of the key ones, and probably the most controversial, is something called the Shroud of Turin. Uh, this is a much-discussed linen of cloth, the, the one in which it is said that Jesus was wrapped in for burial. Now, I think it's important for us to note that archaeology cannot answer the question, was this Jesus that was wrapped in it? The best that archaeology can do is to determine the date, whether it fits into the area, uh, the typology, uh, and the way burial customs were, and would it fit into the time period of Jesus. And perhaps its place of origin as well, I think, could also be put in there. It is it should be possible to demonstrate that it was man-made, but it is virtually impossible to prove its authentic- authenticity, which is why there's caused so much controversy around it. The first documented appearance of the shroud actually occurs in 1357 in France. And in 1578, it was relocated to Turin, Italy, where for the most part, it has remained ever since. The long linen shroud has a faint image of a brownish red uh, on the front and the back of a man who appears to have been whipped and crucified. A bloodstain appears on the wrist and the foot. And in 1898, it was photographed for the first time. When the black and white negative was examined, it realized that it was actually positive. This means that the image on the linen, however it was made, was transferred from a body of a three-dimensional figure. And in 1978, it was again photographed under blue light, yielding a more remarkable picture of the figure on the shroud. How the image came to be on the cloth is, in this negative fashion, is still a mystery, though. Those who believe it is a medieval fabrication have not been able to offer a convincing explanation for how the image was imprinted on the linen. Now, in recent years, a number of scientific investigations have been carried out to test the age and the authenticity of the shroud. Some claim the image was made by paint uh, and it was a hoax, while others claim that the substance is blood. Here's what we can do with archaeology at this point, because this is a very famous piece of evidence revolving around the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. What we can do is archaeology did an analysis of the pollens collected uh, to point that it is from a dry climate, such as modern-day Israel or the the Near East. It cannot be found, and the pollens found there were not from 
Europe. So to say that it was fabricated in Europe is not a, a true statement. Another test revealed that the limestone powder, that there was limestone powder in the fabric. When compared to the uh, Jerusalem limestone, it showed a remarkable match in the chemical compounds. And the substance that was created um, has been the subject of, of quite the inquiry over the years. What I'm saying in this is now this puts us at the location of Jerusalem, both from the pollens in the dry area and of the limestone in that was specifically from Jerusalem and quarried from Jerusalem. Being what we just talked about with Golgotha, probably being from a limestone quarry and where Jesus was buried, this could lead to it saying that, yes, this shroud was from this area. What comes uh, into next is really the dating, which has been very tough uh, for them to date over the years. Uh, and it's still one of those things that scientific study of the linen may be able to answer the question, but it can never prove to whom it was belonged. Uh, what it does show us that if authentic, then it does show signs that match with both, cru both crucifixion and torture from the Roman period and location right from Jerusalem where this probably also, I mean, where Jesus was crucified. Can we specifically say that it was Jesus and it is Jesus on the Shroud of Turin? No, we cannot up until this point, but there is still scientific research being done on it. As it is a very old piece of linen, it has to be kept in a very specific container so it doesn't degenerate as time passes. But, but nonetheless, we can see that it fits with the burial customs of that time period. So we put location and time all in the check boxes that, that point to this being authentic in some way or another. Scientific evidence will show us what it means later, or it will give us maybe some more information later. I'm going to uh, finish here for today. I realize that this has been a lot. And, and for those of you who are like me and I'm a bit of an archaeology nerd, I hope you uh, enjoy this kind of taking a look at locations and dates and times situated around the story of Easter. And I could go on. I definitely could go on. And I, at some point, I would maybe love to discuss the, the tomb of Jesus and, and a little bit more about this. But I think that this is a great place to stop. We've looked at some controversial evidence with the Shroud of Turin and understand what that means. We've also looked at the location and the people involved. Now, I could go on about archaeology, but now it's that point where you have to make that jump to say, hey, we start to understand that the locations and the time and the people in this story are true. Now it's time to start to realize that the God behind the story is true as well. It's where we really have to make that connection with archaeology and apologetics and uh, our own Christian walk. So I'm going to pause there for this week and and uh, and finish up. But let me just say, uh, 
A, this has been fun for me, so thank you for indulging me. Uh, B, have a very happy Easter uh, wherever you are celebrating, whether you're joining us at sunrise on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, or you're listening to this anywhere else in the world, in the U.S. or Canada or or Europe. Who knows where you may be joining us? I'm glad that you've joined me as we've got taken this journey. So I will say take care. Have a great Easter as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I will talk to you next week. Take care. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for joining us on the Luke Miller Podcast, a part of Sunrise Digital Ministries at Sunrise Community Church in Fair Oaks, California. If you're wanting to know more about our digital ministries, you can download our app at the Google Play Store or the Apple Store, where you'll find Backshed Bible Study, Sunday Sermons, and the Luke Miller Podcast. If you've got questions about who Jesus is or what it means to be a Christ follower, we would love to connect with you. And you can send us a note at www.sunrise.church/welcome, and we'll get you connected. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.